Hello, patrons. Welcome to a new sort of episode. First time we do one of these. We're calling it Alpha Bonus Bonus, uh, in which we go through your comments, critiques, and so on uh, of the past month or so's episodes uh, and respond to them. Uh, sometimes we're not so good at replying on, on Patreon to everything or, you know, on other social media. Um, so this is kind of an opportunity for us to, uh, to round up a bunch of uh, different questions and comments and criticisms, lots of criticisms, uh, and, uh, and discuss them here. These monthly bonus episodes also feature bonus content from the past month, and that's what you'll hear first. What you're about to hear now is some bonus footage that we recorded with Corey Robin uh, when we had the interview with him. Uh, he stuck around for a little bit uh, so we could ask him some additional questions that we didn't really get to broach uh, in the main part of the interview. And in, as always, kind of some interesting stuff. Um, actually, maybe arguably some of the most interesting stuff uh, that comes out afterwards. Uh, so that's what you're about to hear right now. I think the point about the weak, I think the, the mutual weakness of the right and the left is a point that gets missed far too often and it's actually kind of hard to convey i think people just i think adapt to new um to new contexts repeatedly to the extent they yeah. think well it must be just an equilibrium it's is it the right up and left down or, or vice versa um and the kind of mutual ruin of the contending classes kind of uh point is is often lost yeah i mean it's also again not to get back to the fascism point but one of the things that also bugs me about that is that, you know, fascism was formed in the crucible against the workers movement and, and socialist movements and parties and revolution. And it had the same kind of will to power that there was on the left and the will to reconstruct and imagine. I mean, everybody always focuses on the, you know, the dystopian elements of fascism for obvious reasons. But it was also kind of an enormous explosion of political creativity and a will to reconstruct polity. And the right just does not have that. Um, yeah right now and 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 so that's part of the performativity on the right and that's also true of most of the left and again part of what gives me a little bit of hope right now is that i just i think there's a real impatience with that kind of performativity you would never know this from social media which is nothing but that um but i think on the ground it's it's kind of different but i do think um you know you're right i mean it, it is the kind of the mutual weakness um although you know, be quiet. But, you know, one of the things that then people do is they say, well, that means the obsolescence of the left and right, which I, you know, mm. I don't believe that um, <laughs> at all. Um, I just think that both are, you know, very. They, they always wanted to come to that conclusion yeah. anyway, I think. Yes, yeah, I think uh, yeah. I think some people had written books back uh, in, yes. in the 90s with that thesis and want, want a chance to uh, to produce a new edition. Um, yes. But yeah, maybe just to, the... to pick this up. Sorry, go on, Phil. I think uh, we might it was been, only to say the well, same point here. Well, it was only to say, I mean, I think the, the right's lack of p political creativity, as you put it, and the left, too, is partly speaks to how how far both are wedded to neoliberalism. Yeah. And the only thing that's imagine, imaginable is um, extending the market or, you know, kind of setting up a kind of corporate LGBT society or whatever it might be. Um, you know, and that's essentially that's it's the dependence and the. Uh, orientation around the market is the only horizon of how to organize social collective life that I think is um, the, you know, the power of neoliberalism or the embeddedness of neoliberalism speaks to that lack of political creativity on both sides. So the one thing I wanted to get uh, just to quickly um, get your thoughts on, Corey, which we didn't get a chance to chat about um, in the main in the main part of it, but was there seems to be something of a of a. A shift away from neoliberalism on the right 
Um, and, you know, there were intimations of that with Bannon, but there's also, um, you know, kind of a, resur- a resurgence of certain um, more intelligent um, uh, aspects of right wing thinkers who are talking about, you know, trying to outline a vision of right wing politics that's more corporatist, more nationalist and explicitly uh, anti neoliberal. And I mean, there's people like Patrick um, Deneen, um, but there's others as well. And I wondered, um, you know, because there there seems to be obvious points of overlap with so many of the um, uh, corporatist arguments that emanate from the left at the moment as well, so many of them incoherent. I wondered how far, you know, how you read this moment and if you see the right adapting and whether or not that uh, tells us anything about our future. So, you know, this was the argument that people had and the concern, actually, that people really had about Trump. Um, was exactly that, that he represented this sharp turn away from neoliberalism and the kind of magical elixir that would rejuvenate the right um, for decades on end. And honestly, I've, I've always been skeptical of that, um, partially for the American context. I mean, the American Republic, you know, because you have to have a you have to have a party to attach to with that project. And the American Pro- Republican Party simply will not tolerate it. And that's became very this is. I mean, everybody was always so frightened that Trump would reconstruct the Republican Party and that the Republican Party reconstructed him. Uh, and it's very clear. Um, there was much more of him uh, abandoning a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, workerist, you know, uh, economic populist rhetoric um, when it came to policy. So partly, I think there's just a very hard constraint on this now uh, from the Republican Party. But I think it's actually deeper than that. And this goes back to the right being a reactionary formation. Um, I think it will take a massive act of dispossession along the lines of what we saw, um, you know, in the 1930s with the worker movement uh, or with the defeat of Jim Crow uh, in the 1960s before the right will be in a position to really have the kind of fundamental transformation that you're talking about. Um, And it, it may be that will be what it comes to is the kind of position you're describing. But um, I think it's, I just don't I, I don't think it's politically feasible. It's not it's not that it's not intellectually or theoretically feasible. And that's where you get mm-hmm. people like Deneen and so forth. Um, but to be an actual political program with a party behind it, the right is going to have to face a kind of much, much more fundamental um, dispossession, um, a, a material dispossession, not just of a party, but of a class of a social class. Mm-hmm. Um, before or, it'll be in a position to do anything like that. Or presumably, I mean, also a, a challenge from the left, which would seek to then incorporate, right? I mean, I guess at yeah. the moment it doesn't have a have the anything propulsing it to do that. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's, uh, you know, uh, people say to me, well, what you're, you know, what you're saying means, well, if the left does anything, then the right's going to come back. And it's, and, and I think that is true. I mean, I, I, you know, Norberto Bobbio's book, you know, right and left is the permanence of a political distinction. I do think it's permanent. And I think the right would rebound. I just think it would, you know, uh, it would, it, it would take a real act of the left, not an electoral victory, um, you know, not even an electoral victory of a Sanders type or, or Corbyn type, but, you know, a massive, both movement and then uh, transformation of the state, um, th- something like that uh, would then force the right to kind of go back to first mm, uh, principles yeah. and start all over again, the way it did in the 1930s. Though, in, in, I mean, in Britain and maybe even arguably with Macron in France, there's a kind of a little bit more of an inclination towards, um, 
yeah, I guess in a more corporatist direction to put it in, you know, to put it in a word. Um, but then maybe I guess the flexibility of those party systems allows it in the way that it might not happen in the U.S. I mean, is that is that would that be your interpretation? I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. But I'm I'm even curious though, you know, in France and in, and in Britain, even though you see sort of nods in this, whether it's on the order of the kind of Thatcherite, um, you know, uh, counter-revolution, you know, where it's a fundamental um, reconsideration of first principles and, uh, and the launching of a whole new uh, political program. And it seems to me it's, uh, you know, it's I'm, not. I'm out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, so, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure about, I mean, France, um, what's striking to me about France, at least, is how much of a strong man Macron has managed to be, despite coming from the liberal center with the brutality of the riot cops that he's, um, you know, unleashed against the Gilets jaunes for the last year. Um, in Britain, though, I mean, what's striking about the Tory government is how astonishingly weak they are. Yeah. Um, Blairite even, you know, in yeah. the Blair's first term, they're so cautious about yeah. wielding their um, majority in Parliament. Mm. Um, and it's all commissions and inquiries, and they collapsed into relying on technocratic scientific expertise throughout the mm. pandemic. So. It's striking how, and they might, you know, they might kind of, they might um, get into their groove. But for the moment, I mean, it's a very familiar story. So, so many people have said that Boris is Britain's Trump, or that mm. he is, in fact, a demagogue, an authoritarian, and a fascist. And he is so far from all of those things, not only in terms of his um, political demeanor, but also just in terms of the weakness of um, a Tory party that commands such a tremendous majority in Parliament at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's yeah, very part- striking. I mean, the correlate, I mean, people forget this, but Trump in his first two uh, years in office had total control over all the elected branches of government, um, you know, with powerful majorities and uh, uh, and, you know, the Supreme Court. And it's the same thing. You know, he couldn't he couldn't even defeat something like Obamacare, which was, you know, it's one thing to take on Social Security or Medicare, these very established bureaucrat bureaucratized you know institutionalized programs he this was a relatively recent thing which is sort of a jerry-rigged structure and even that he couldn't get the full votes uh in congress for it so uh, you know it's a it's a it's a similar um a similar phenomenon so it's, it's interesting you talked about um you mentioned sort of di- dispossession earlier um mm. but I, I maybe a question on the on the um, the radical right or the reactionary right um and how i guess the questions maybe okay we, we've talked a, a lot about conservatism particularly being weak and trump is a, a good a good example of this but what about maybe i guess a further further yeah. right or more more reactionary um streams of of the right that might previously have been described as almost alt-right do you think this is do you think that there's going to be some of these potentially these narratives of cultural dispossession that could could have could gain some mass support, perhaps particularly in the wake of um, BLM protests. Do you think there could be almost that kind of kind of mm-hmm. backlash um, in cultural terms? I don't think so. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, that's exactly in you know many ways what Trump was riding was this sort of notion of cultural dispossession. Yeah. Um, and to the extent that you know he's had support, it's you know in part based on that. Um, and again, you know, this is something where I think I, I depart from liberals and leftists and a whole bunch of people because um, it's such a an old part of the story of the right. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm going way back, but you know, just in terms of the modern American right, and you know, Richard Nixon, that was a big part 
of what, um, you know, in Spiro Agno, that was a big part of what they did. And again, once you start thinking about it in a historical perspective, what's just shocking to me, and, and I think this should be just interesting to everybody who's not on the right, um, is, you know, uh, those narratives, which once really did fuel a very powerful counter-revolution, or help fuel it, I should say, um, don't have as much traction uh, anymore. And, the, and we're seeing this right now. You know, Trump is really trying to ride that law and order thing. Mm-hmm. And what's surprising is, is just um, the constituency, the majority constituency does not seem to be there. And I mean, the polling showed this actually going back to Black Lives Matter, um, you know, in 2015. And so I do think a lot of these cultural dispossession arguments, while they're potent, the, the real story there is the decreasing potency of them. And I don't say this in a, a, a coming from a kind of Pollyanna position, like, oh, we're just getting more multicultural. That's not, you know, it's just, just looking at the narrative of, of that kind of cultural dispossession over time. It's just, uh, it's what's surprising about it is how, um, how much weaker it's become and its political uh, potency. No, that's interesting. Did, I did want to ask you one more thing, which is just that, um, I mean, we've discussed the questions of kind of postmodern dissolution of, of social bonds on, on this podcast in, in recent episodes, actually. And it struck me kind of setting that against the uh, article, the review article you had in The Nation recently about communist lives. Um, mm. And you noted that, you know, the, the, the kind of about the co- promise of the communist experience of, of gaining a new identity of that through struggle of, of, you know, kind of letting go of your old ties of, of kinship or family and actually, you know, dedicating yourself to a cause. And it strikes me today that you have, on the one hand, neither though the, the kind of you have the weakening of, you know, kinship ties of family, you know, the, the haven in a heartless world is, is kind of under attack from from all sides, both through the market as well as arguably through, you know, cultural liberalism's attacks on it as well. Uh, well, at the same time, you don't have really public causes to, to dedicate yourself to, you know, to really find freedom through through your actions. Um, and so how do you kind of how do you navigate that question? I mean, in, in today in a kind of in a postmodern age of the mm. questions of, you know, belonging versus social purpose and, and arguably today where we have neither of those two. Right. So I think I, you know, I'm somebody who. Um, Christopher Lash was one of the you know first people I read um, many, many years ago um, and have sort of been contending with parts of his thesis, I mean, because you mentioned Haven in a Heartless World, which was the title of one of his books Mm. uh, in the 1970s. That's why I bring him up. And that was part of his argument. It was deliberate on my part, but yeah. (laughs) Ah, Okay. Um, I never know how much Lash goes beyond the borders of the United States in terms of um, uh, his his, uh, readership. But um, he's traveled. He's traveled. Don't worry. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think we're all big fans as well. on this Ah, Okay. So and, you know, I I, I understand, you know, the, the the power of that argument, but I think um, what strikes me is is actually, and I think this is part of neoliberalism, um, is how much people do, in fact, rely upon family and kinship networks. Um, that the isolated monad that both libertarians imagine, or some of them do, and that leftists critique, I don't criticize. I don't think actually really exists. Mm. Um, and um, what I'm struck by is, is in fact, the more neoliberal, the more heartless the world becomes, the more people do turn to family resources. 
um, and not just wealthy people, but, you know, poor people and relying upon relatives and um, and the kind of um, all that all that part. And, and how much to the extent the right wanted that um, that that turned to the family uh, and family sources of provision. So I, I think I question part of the premise of the question, but I do think um, the, 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 the absence of a kind of left narrative in a way of um, living the kind of public lives of freedom is, you know, is a huge pr- problem. Um, it's a very, very big problem. And, you know, one of the uh, sources of my ongo- ongoing sources of frustration with the left is, you know, its inability um, to, uh, to, to supply that. Um, and so I think that is a big you know, it's something that really does have to be overcome. But I'm I'm less persuaded uh, of an argument, you know, that I've been wrestling with, you know, since uh, I was in college, uh, you know, about the the dis- you know the dissolution of the family and, and things like that. I, I think about it, you know, it's um, in the same way that I think the workplace is not a structure of isolation, but quite the opposite. Um, it's it's a structure of, of of intense sociality. Some of it good and a lot of it quite bad. Um, I think that's, you know, that's also true of the family as well. I think that, I mean, that certainly strikes me as true about the kind of retreat to the family. I mean, it strikes me here very much in Brazil, but I appreciate that, you know, in Brazil, the family is still a major social institution in the way that it probably isn't nowadays in, in the US and certainly isn't in a lot of Western Europe, certainly my experience in Britain. Um, but, you know, the degree to which the reactionary right through Bolsonaro has uh, mobilized that kind of I'm going to just defend what's what's mine here with the family um, against a, against a kind of brutal outer world. But of course, that's a you know it's a very different context. So um, you know I, I appreciate that that might not be uh, entirely the the same case. But um, on the other side of it, you know, as you said about the kind of living out a kind of public freedom, uh, it's hard because I think often on the left that is only exists as a sort of exhortation. Like, you yeah. know, commit to the cause, yeah. go out and do it, you know, yeah. um, and without a without a real without, I guess, a real movement out there happening that you can actually plug into, you know, it's completely, um, I guess, how would you put it completely like self-motivated, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and there's, you know, an intense moralism um, that goes with it that I find um you know, not helpful. And, you know, one of the things I was struck by in, in, and wrote about in this, that piece about the communist party was, you know, the way the structure of solidarity that it built, that was really about both emancipation, but also about discipline. Um, and, you know, that's of course, in part of the story of how the communist party went off the rails as well. So I don't want to pretend like there's not a tremendous dark side to that. Um, but, the ability to kind of see um, collective emancipation and freedom through discipline um, and creating through creating power and solidarity through mutual commitment, uh, but not just mutual commitment, but also mutual accountability. Um, you know, these are very, very real questions. Um, and I do think, you know, some people are wrestling with them. Um, but it seems like what I see on the left is just this kind of weird toggling and I should probably go after this, um, but this very strange oscillation or, you know, wild oscillation between, you know, sort of radical freedom, you know, and then kind of random acts of discipline um, and, and just sort of back and forth, back and forth without, you know, a, a, an attempt to integrate 
the two and how they would fit in a real a creation of a real movement. Um, and, you know, I think that's I think that's the task at hand. Yeah, well put. Um, we will let you go. Um, just before you go, I just want to do something really unfair. But is it Biden? Where we are now uh, with the information that we have, is it Biden 2020 or is Trump going to be like reelected? Just give a, a prediction. You know, I, I, there's no way in hell I'm going to do that. I, <laughs> I, I, I listened to everybody and said, of course, Hillary is going to be elected in 2016. And it was, you know, so it's just there's not a chance in hell you're going to get me to on the record. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You're, you're right. You're, you're entirely within your right to tell me to fuck off. So, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> politely refused to answer the question. <laughs> All right. Very good. We'll, we'll let you go. Um, thank you so much again. Okay, so now we'll turn to your comments. Uh, if your comment doesn't get mentioned, uh, apologies for overlooking it, um, or if you had emailed in or something, we, we missed that out. Um, apologies, uh, feel free to call us shitbags um, wherever you care to do that. Uh, if, your so, comment, if your comment doesn't get uh, mentioned, then you should send it back to us in ruder language. Really uh, get up in our grill. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. So uh, what we're going to do, the way this is going to run, we're going to do them in uh, in groups according to uh, the episode that it's replying to um, wherever possible. So, uh, and we'll, we'll do in reverse order. So we'll do the most recent one first. Uh, the first one is episode 129. It's our recent three articles on the global BLM. Um, one person, Zoe Hu on Patreon points out that uh, Cedric Johnson's piece doesn't mention the fact that the fiercest and most protected protests have been happening in states with Democrat mayors and governors. Uh, so I thought that was quite interesting, a worthwhile uh, observation um, that I... It's a good point, of. and I think it would, if anything, it would reinforce um, Cedric Johnson's uh, lines. I mean, you know, it's um, in many ways, I mean, I think there is, um, yeah, I mean, it would fit, wouldn't it? The fact that the Democrats have done nothing for, um, you know, for the for uh, protecting their constituents from the brutality of the police. Um, and also, to some extent, I imagine there's some degree of sponsorship by the Democrats, some kind of cynical degree of sponsorship by the Democrats for certain kinds of things as well, such as, say, the Chapel Hill Autonomous Zone, um, so-called CHAZ in Seattle. That seems to me basically to be a sand pit, which has been effectively allowed to flourish by the Democratic Party for whatever reasons they have on the ground before they decide to sh close it down so you know i mean i don't think this is i think it would reinforce cedric johnson the broad thrust of J cedric johnson's argument more than anything else yeah yeah absolutely um so moving on uh this one had a lot more comments uh, number 128 backlash our episode with uh anna Katchen on culturally conservative critics of capitalism the first comment is from tom l on patreon uh where i mean he remarks that it's very easy to look back to the past and think things were better then. Um, so there's always going to be a, a temptation to a sort of conservative, a small C conservative politics. Um, but that he doesn't think it'd be a good idea for the left to embrace cultural conservatism and it doesn't find blue labor particularly convincing. Um, but what the left does need is a sort of ethos um, and an ethos which isn't just guilt, which is what it currently pervades. Um, hard to disagree with that. Um, and I think we've kind of discussed this question of whether the left needs an ethos or not. I remember Phil kind of disagreeing with that idea. But um, any thoughts? 
I think an ethos you can you can you can have a positive ethos, one that's grounded in democracy and the the desire to to rule ourselves. That is it. That is the, That is the left's ethos, presumably. Um, ethos. It's got to be based so on interest. I mean, the in, you know, it's got to be like no, I think it, people. You need to have the interest in self-rule um, in order to be in a position for. In order to be in a position to kind of undertake your own emancipation. I think that's right. I think, but the ethos would be something that runs through it as a, as a way of, as a as a way of uh, organizing your relations and, and interactions, right? So it's one of it and could be in, one of yeah, respect, if you want, or it could be one of, well, of organizing uh, your interest. I mean, surely it would be organizing the interest that you have in social change. Um, it would be, be articulating that to... as an interest. Solidarity and collectivity, for example, would be an ethos which uh, the old left had almost spontaneously, um, which yeah, but, it doesn't I mean, have today. Nobody, everyone on the left would say that we do have solidarity with, you know, Chavez and, you know, like, um, I don't know, whatever kind of marginalized kind of oppressed remote group you can think of. I mean, that's the way in which so they, nobody would deny that they don't have solidarity, you know. But it's it, not I think one... but it's, but the point is that it's not any kind of often it's not kind of local solidarity. I mean, certainly in terms of like activist discourse, it's always, it's often, as you say, about solidarity with something over there, um, with some kind of struggle that we want to, uh, you know, tire, you know, attach ourselves to. But it, I think there's something about a more organic solidarity, which is expressed locally and interpersonally, which I think would be, maybe is probably often missing, certainly on the online <laughs> online left. I don't know, man. I mean, it's so hard to get kind of how, you know, it's got to, when you start saying interpersonally, you know, I mean, it just collapses into what kind of ordinary everyday politeness. I mean, you know, I don't know. That might not be a bad, a bad start. Um, You're right. Yeah. Um, so another, another point made is by Brandon on Patreon, where he points out that, uh, there's a kind of conflict between the very online ultra liberals right, I guess kind of identity politics, uh, hyper-liberalism, and uh, maybe an older generation of Marxist feminists like Nancy Fraser and Angela Davis, and that actually it's the kind of online radlibs who've become, who started to stand in as a straw man for kind of Marxist feminists. Um, and so they think that there's going to be, uh, this is Brandon, uh, uh, an interesting discussion in the near future is an attempt to navigate the space between Thinkers like Angela Nagel and Anna Katchen on one hand, and Marxist feminists like Fraser, Angela Davis, or Sylvia Federici uh, on the other, um, which is interesting. I don't, I'm not sure what to make of that. I think it's spot on, um, in the sense that you know they. Um, I mean, somebody else I think picked up on a similar kind of line, which is untangling these knots. Um, which is to say that on the one hand, um, you know, there are those who say that neoliberalism basically um, recreates forms of um, new kind of forms of oppression around race and gender. And um, and then the kind of Angela Nagel um, line, which is that neoliberalism effectively or left neoliberalism uh, artificially constructs sites of opposition around um, issues that are essentially cultural rather than focused on the material interests of workers. And it seems to me those are two because, you know, what 
what unifies both of them is the fact they're both opposed to what they understand as what Nancy Fraser calls progressive neoliberalism and, you know, Angela Nagel sees as the kind of cultural hegemony of the liberal left. And so they both kind of identify a common enemy, but um, see different problems around that. And so I think, I mean, and I can see, you know, there's a case to be made for both for both ends of it. So I think untangling some of those knots, I think, is probably there is useful work to be done there. Um, that would be politically clarifying and important. So, I mean, I agree with the with the listener um, in this instance. Just to add to that, and, and George, you can come in on this, uh, which connects very closely to, to the previous comment. It was one uh, comment made by Carl Schrapper on Facebook, uh, which is that, unfortunately, both the idiots in question, that is the kind of online rad libs, and the quote-unquote nasbols, they oppose are yawn inducing are a yawn inducing appendix to the ongoing end of history there's a lot to unpack there um george why don't you unpack it for us and then tell us what you think um i think any yeah the the phrase the word nasbol i've i've had to explain this to a couple of people what it means and they've just shaken their head at me and and clearly thought yeah you spend too much time online um yeah i mean i guess the, the question i think the, the the that conflict between the the kind of new new left thinkers like nagel and Katchen and the marxist feminists i think that could be in in a productive discussion but i i'm i guess the the question is what the i think I, sorry what just, are the I, I think he's drawing attention to something else i think he's talking about the the the, the kind of anti-woke left I guess you could say Angela and 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 Anna, um, and the and the wokes um, are it's a sideshow, basically a, a yawn-inducing appendix to the ongoing end of history. So this this struggle between the woke the woke liberals and the anti-woke left is um, is bullshit. I mean that's that ar- that's what it's arguing. Um, I, th- I mean I think there's a, a, a there's a good point here, which I agree that it is a bit of a there's an element of a sideshow to it, and it's taking sides in in the culture war which i think we have to get beyond culture war that's the that's the crucial point on the other hand i think um there's a there's a worthwhile thing in terms of doing some kind of uh house cleaning in terms of getting rid of a lot of these uh cultural liberal ideas on the left so i think i think there is an important struggle to be had there but i don't think it should dominate political thinking yeah i mean i'm a big fan of um carl shepper's um Carl Schepper on social media, the kinds of points that he makes generally, and I often find myself in agreement with him. Um, but this said, I mean, I don't, you know, the ad, it's uh, this, um, I suppose, the uh, finding these kinds of debates tedious is a luxury I don't think we can necessarily afford, because it's the form through which we have to disentangle certain kinds of um, certain kinds of uh, problems. Um, and I'm not sure the, you know, I mean, so you know it's as if i uh, i don't i don't i would say i mean i would not side with either i mean i'm certainly not um you know i'm not a i'm sympathetic to lash but i'm not a lashian um nor a left conservative of any kind of description so but nonetheless i see that there is some utility in trying to understand what's at stake in these debates because i think for a change perhaps there is something genuinely at stake in um this attempt to overcome the soggy um, and debilitating liberalism, which encumbers the way in which the left understands itself. Yeah, fair enough. I uh, don't disagree with that. Um, so, 
let's move on to uh, to the another to another one about which we had a lot of comments. So episodes one two six and one two seven. That was uh, Mr. Bunga goes to Washington number three uh, with Angela Nagel and Michael Tracy. Um, it was uh, very widely listened to, so I guess people liked it. But people also really fucking hated it. So <laughs> let's let's deal with that head on. Um, on Patreon, uh, G Mama, Thomas Duck, and Chapley Kebab Hat, uh, all in different ways, thought it was very frustrating. The most dis- disappointing interview we've ever done. Um, so uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you can't you can't please all of the people all of the time. No, but I think we should. I think we should deal with what. Uh, the, but this this some of the this specifics. one definitely didn't didn't please all of the people. Yeah, um, pleased quite. So I think one of the one of the arguments made um, by Martinus Augst on Patreon um, relates to what we were just talking about in the previous episode. They're saying that Nagel and Tracy are just doing culture war. Um, they de facto support neoliberal austerity because they support. Um, uh, Tulsi, for example, um, and that basically this is just a this is just a little shit fight, an endless culture war with everyone being butt hurt, butt hurt on all sides, um, and so that they're both kind of default austerity warriors, um, and uh, and therefore don't uh, you know aren't really opposing neoliberalism. They're just taking sides in a culture war within neoliberalism. Um, you guys I find it bizarre first? because. Well, I didn't see them as supporting Tulsi. Um, it wasn't full-throated to advocate. You know, they weren't advocating every single um, line that Tulsi Gobard stood for. They were using her as a foil in order to draw out the blind spots um, in the Bernie campaign and on other parts of the left. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, you know, maybe perhaps I'm wrong, but I didn't understand it, like I say, as um, saying that Tulsi should have won. It was rather drawing attention to the fact that there was consistency in some of her positions, which would have benefited um, the rest of the left had they been willing to um, take on board some of them. And the idea that Angela Nagel is some kind of neoliberal austerian seems to me, um, you know, I mean, fanciful. I think it's it's worth it's worth making the general point that the the support for a particular candidate does not necessarily invalidate the critique of, of another that the you know the, the the positive political prescriptions and the and the diagnosis of, of what went wrong with Bernie campaign can be can be separated but I mean there's I mean this this I think is quite a common theme in the in the comments that we had the ne- the more negative comments that we had on this episode were around this is a it, it's a cultural analysis it focuses too much on on the discourse it's too internal to I guess to the to the intra-party disputes um and it's not related to the to wider material conditions or or as kind of a broader sociological analysis and while i think that's probably to a certain extent true the there's a question as to why the these fights within um left-wing organizations seem to be very uh, internal um within left populism there's you know we we've talked about um, a lot of these issues previously, but there is something, there is a way in which the um, the political struggles are framed in terms of the the language and the institutions which already exist on on the left, with different groups trying to trying to take them over. Which I think is probably ultimately just um, a consequence of the the general weakness of the left in America and elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I guess the question um, about causality and culpability, 
uh, for Bernie's failure, of course, is, is, is going to be fraught. Um, I think, and again, yeah, just to call out some of the comments that we've received on this, um, some critical comments, uh, that, uh, you know, to the, so, uh, Jeremy Clemens Miro on Patreon, uh, saying that it's unfair because we lumped together the radical left, um, and, you know, there's different things going on there that all get lumped together for the purposes of the argument. Um, the idea that uh, this is a superficial identity obsessed cultural analysis um, that they could have read in The Guardian instead. That's Dave Tully on Patreon um, and uh, Nick Thompson on Patreon also saying that, you know, he likes Nagel, but both she and Tracy discuss into the Sanders campaign purely through a cultural lens. Um, and Carrie is on in that vein. Um, and I think we, we sort of did discuss in the in that episode the contrast of the David Guastella piece, um, which highlights more structural factors. I mean, just to recap that whole discussion, because I think this is important, it's that if you think um, Bernie had a serious chance of winning, then you have to look at what what happened, why 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 he didn't win, right? Um, if you point to structural obstacles and say, look, it was always going to be very difficult, then fair enough as well. Um, you know, those those those. Different, those two different perspectives both have, uh, have their merit. Um, what I think is, is, is problematic is those people who thought Bernie could win, but then turn around and go, oh, but it was all structural obstacles. And I think that's, that's kind of, um, that's kind it's of a question of, it's a, it's a question of responsibility. Are you willing to, to, to take responsibility for the, for the failures and the errors that you, that you made or that you advocated for? Um, and I think it's, it's not an easy thing to do because it, it, it it suggests that your analysis was wrong, your your approach was wrong, and we don't see it very often on the left. I think they're, uh, you know, I've been part of, of groups which have definitely failed in 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 their aims, and I think it's um, you didn't see. I think well, at least maybe I didn't see. I didn't come across um, any real kind of reckonings. I think there was a lot of defensiveness in the. You know the the, the straight away the, the the kind of beyond Bernie kind of movement or, or or way of packaging. I mean that's that's possibly good. There could be some some useful energies there, but a kind of real reckoning. You know this is this is why it didn't work. Um, I didn't really I didn't really sort of see that. And so I think that you can see where the some of the the not the vitriol but some of the um, hard headedness of the critique that Nagel and Tracy put forward comes from because they don't you know it's not easy to see where people are really holding their hands up and saying look we 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 failed here but in order to not fail next time we need to be quite um, quite brutal with ourselves as to why that happened. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I I tend to agree with a little bit of the thrust of the comments. Um, insofar as maybe it is too cultural an analysis, I, I, but I think we need to disentangle that. So, you know, what did, was Bernie too woke and did that put people off? Maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, they're going to mainly Democrat register Democrats in many of the states anyway, um, who might like that kind of thing. I mean, for me, and I, it might be worth, I guess, us just saying what we, what we think on this, um, because it's, proved so fraught so far um, is just that Bernie got stuck in a no man's land between being a kind of insurgent candidate as he was in 2016 and being part of the democratic establishment and perhaps especially after the victory of Trump there was just too much um, emphasis within the Democrats to get someone who was electable and who was a proper Democrat not a, not an insurgent and, and maybe I think that might be 
uh, at root of what's going on. And all the points that Nagel and, uh, and, and Tracy make about, you know, cultural liberalism and, and its problems are true, but I don't think they're necessarily what is responsible for Bernie's defeat. Surely, surely the conclusion is more research is needed or more accurately, more episodes um, in the Mr. Bunga Goes to Washington series are needed. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, okay, and then just to round this out, uh, a last comment from uh, Steve Hall, previous guest, friend of the podcast. Uh, so maybe writing off the left and starting again is about the most productive thing we can do. Um, maybe, I don't know exactly what that means. Does that mean abandoning the whole concept of left and right or just the empirical left as it exists today? We'll have to get Steve on, get him to uh, expound on that. All right, we'll leave that there. Uh, thanks for all your questions and comments especially the critical ones uh we like those uh do keep them coming in let us know what you thought of this as well as uh any other episodes we'll be back with another one of these at the end of the following month uh recapping uh our previous month's episodes thank you once again uh for signing up and that's it for now catch you later Bye bye